That brings us now to uh, the first chapter in the book of Acts, and, and there's, a, there's a theme or there's a, a topic in, this, in these first five verses that, that is interesting to me, and I think that it's going to help us uh, kind of set the tone and set the pace for our responsibility as believers. And again, hear me on this. My challenge to Christ church is this, is that there is a community outside these walls that is desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who's going to take it to them? If we don't, who else is? I mean, I know this, this community is riddled with churches and there's churches all over the place, but I'm going to tell you something. If every single church in this community was packed out this morning, do you know how many more people would still be out there yet to reach? So all the churches in Bartlett cannot hold the people of Bartlett. Y'all understand that process, right? So, so we need more engagement. We need more people who are willing to be obedient and go into their places of influence and going into their communities and engaging the lost and being the love of Christ and being the light of Christ. And that, that's going to be the recurring challenge for you and for me moving forward as we study the book of Acts. But, but this interesting concept this morning that I want to share with you is, is titled The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus makes mention of this here in Acts chapter 1. And so we're going to talk today about what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and just kind of how it uh, applies to us as believers today. And I hope it will be very helpful for you and me, again, as we set the tone and the pace for our responsibility and our privilege of being the believers that God has called us to be. Now, for those of you who don't know a whole lot about me, I was, um, we were, I was born and Octibaha County down in Mabin, Mississippi, and if y'all probably have no idea where that is, but Starkville, Starkville, Mississippi is in Octibaha County, so the Mississippi State is down that way. And My parents moved shortly to Senatobia, Mississippi, where I was raised. I lived my whole life, basically one house. We were, grew up in this very same house and, and kind of went through my whole high school career there and uh, played a lot of baseball, pretty good athlete, um, made good grades. I was a, uh, an all-A student, 4.0 student. And one of the things I regret, my parents did a lot of great things, but one of the things they did not do for me is sit me down and try to help guide me in choosing a career or a profession. And so I got, I got baseball scholarship. I could go anywhere I wanted to go, not necessarily, but, but I, I, went, I had several different options and opportunities to go play baseball, understanding that wherever I choose to play baseball, I would get a free education. And you really want to take advantage of a free education, Right. So I went to a community college for a couple of years, ended up going down in the Delta, Delta State University, and lo and behold, I had my whole uh, tuition paid for, and guess what I chose as my major? Journalism. Journalism. Now, now it sounds interesting, right? Uh, and, and, and I was a good writer, and I wanted to communicate, and I thought, man, this kind of like, sounds like a pretty interesting job. You're kind of engaged in the community. You know what's going on. You kind of get your name out there. You get to make an impact and make a difference, unless they would have first told me that a journalist coming out of college makes a whopping $19,000 a year. And I had, at that time, when I graduated, my, Abby and I were married with both of our, our first two boys, Easton and Vance. And I go out into the real world with this wonderful degree that I could have gotten anything in, and I chose journalism. And so I go into the uh, work for a local newspaper there, down there in Hernando, Mississippi, and I realize real quick, this just is not going to cut it. There's no way I can provide for my family and support my family on this kind of a salary. And I look back on those times and the days, and I, I spent about two years in the newspaper industry. Now, moving forward, I want you to know that God still was able to use that in my communication background to help prepare me for what I'm doing now, obviously, in the ministry. So God is always going to be working everything together for the good of those who love him. And I understand that and I appreciate that. And he has been able to use what I learned in journalism to help me in ministry and help me as a communicator. But I think looking back, I would have probably chosen something else more, more lucrative. But that's beside the point. The point is today, if you think about our journalistic culture that we live in today, has anybody been paying attention to what, what's one of the big topics that's been going on in the media today concerning our journalists? Does anybody know? It's called fake, fake news. And this is just like this phenomenon, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it over and over and over again. It's like, what is, what is it with this fake news today? And, and basically, it's really very, very simple. Because of social media and because of the, the access that we have to information today, which is unlike anything else that we've ever had before, Anybody at any time can put information out there as gospel truth. 
right? And if you're not careful, and some of you have probably fallen victim to this, probably like on Facebook or you see this article and you're, oh man, I, that, that completely lines up with what I believe. I'm going to share this. And you share it and you realize a little bit later, that was not true at all, was it? And you didn't do your due diligence to really investigate it and do your homework say, is this really true or is this just another bit of fake News. Now, we've seen this reach the, the national level where it involves our White House and the, the Department of Justice and all this kind of stuff that's going on. And by all means, if you're not up to that, you can, you can read about that and, and understand that. But I think it's interesting because as a journalist, I understand how important, at least initially, journalists were so important in the balance of a culture, of an of a honest, just culture, because journalists are kind of the, they're kind of the watchmen of the politics and the watchmen of, of culture. And, if, they're, and if, they're, if they maintain their integrity, they're supposed to be reporting objectively. Now, this is the big word. A journalist, journalist's job is to report objectively, not allowing his personal feelings to get involved in the process. That's where we've really gone wrong because these journalists who maybe hate a particular person or hate a particular movement, if they're not careful, they'll let their bias get in the way of reporting objectively and they start to report things that are not necessarily 100% accurate and true. So the for fake news is that all of us need to make sure that we do our, our homework and investigate information before we repeat it or share it or, or intend for other people to believe that it is true. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to North Korea today, and by the way, did y'all see the Olympics where North Korea and South Korea marched out together for the first time under one flag? That was really interesting. I'm not sure what's going to come of that. I don't think a lot is going to come of that, honestly, because if you go to North Korea today, one of the biggest reasons they can maintain such oppression and control over their people in North Korea is because they control all of the information. They control the media. They control the access to Internet and all of those kind of things that their people are able to see. And therefore, if they can maintain control of the media and propaganda, they can maintain control over the people. It was the same thing that happened in Nazi Germany back in the 1930s and 40s because they had such control over information. Now, what does that have to do with Acts chapter 1? Well, this is where I want us as, as Christians to put our thinking caps on a little bit and understand that our faith really is grounded in two different things. Number one, our faith is grounded in objective truth. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. So, and Luke is one of the very best authors who does such a good job of making sure that he presents to us a case, a verifiable case that can be trusted as reliable historical facts so that when we read the Gospels and we read the Bible, we need to understand we're reading it in the context that this is not just myth, this is not just fable, this is not just some kind of uh, religion that a bunch of men came together and decided they were going to formulate and come up with. No, this is rooted and grounded in historical fact, so it can be rooted in objective truth. In other words, something that happened in history that's true, we can go back and check it and make sure it's verifiable. It's important that our faith is rooted in grounded in that because God is the God of all truth so if we can't trust the source of who God is meaning his word then it's really kind of hard to trust God himself isn't it so we as believers need to come to a point where we understand not just that we accept this as being true because mom and dad or pastor Marcus told me to accept it as being true but we investigate it and do our homework just like we should with fake news and make sure we have a reason to believe why this is true it's challenging but it's part of our responsibility as a believer. But what's the other side of that? It's something I shared with our Sunday school class just a while ago. The other side of that is, is your personal experience. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So in one hand, something happened 2,000 years ago that, had, that was objectively true, that you weren't necessarily there, but you believe in the facts and the testimony of what happened that's rooted in truth. But then there's something also happens to each individual believer personally is that when you come into a relationship and a personal encounter with the living God, with the living Lord Jesus Christ, then he does something in your life personally and changes you so that no one can take that personal experience away from you. But here's the trouble. There are people who are having all kinds of personal experiences out there. There are. So we can't just put our hope and our faith in our personal experiences 
alone because we always have to make sure that our personal experience and what's happening in our life through a relationship with Christ is also in agreement with what? The Word of God. You see, because when you have people telling you about their personal experiences and how this is who they think God is, or if they believe that aliens created the universe, or they've had encounters with extraterrestrials and they believe that's what true is in their life, you can't necessarily deny their experience. But what you can do is ask, well, does that experience align itself up and agree with what? With the Word of God. And so why do you think it is that the Word of God is under attack all the time by the Satan, by the satanic uh, forces of darkness. It's because if Satan can undermine the word of God, okay, he has basically destroyed the foundation upon, we, upon which we stand as believers. That's how important this word is to us in our faith. Now, this is not going to be a lesson or a message about how we can trust the Bible and the reasons why I trust the Bible. That's maybe something that we can get into for another day. But I wanted to kind of draw those two contrasts out for you today because Luke does a very good job introducing his book to us today rooted in the facts. So let's look at the first point. And the first point is that our faith is rooted in the verifiable testimony of God's word. Look at what Luke says in Acts chapter 1. In the, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you remember the first book that Luke uh, wrote was the Gospel of Luke. So he set out to, to draw up a historical account by making eyewitness investigation, interviewing people who were there with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, touched him, who saw him, who heard him, who witnesses to the resurrection. All of those things, Luke went, set out. His whole purpose was to be a good investigative journalist. Now, he's coming to write a second book about the history in the, in the beginning of the church, and he's writing to the very same person, Theophilus, and listen to what he says. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's the ascension of Christ, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by, listen, listen to this, by many convincing proofs. There's that objective truth. Many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's what Luke is getting at here. He's saying, first, I want to tell you, Theophilus, this is the, the man that he was writing to. He's saying, I drew up an account of everything that Jesus began to do and teach. You can read about that in my gospel, the gospel of Luke. But now, Theophilus, I want to tell you about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. As a matter of fact, he showed himself convincingly to many witnesses after he was raised from the dead. And that's what it's saying when it says that our, our faith is rooted in the verifiable testimony of God's word. I'll say it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ in the historical account of the early church stands on the firm foundation of objective truth and eyewitness testimony. The book of Acts, in essence, is history. It is originally church history. And I want to tell you something. We can trust history. For the most part, everything that we, that we know about the ancient world is all what? It's all history. So what are we going to trust about it? How do, how do we know that what's been recorded and, and has been passed down to us is, is true? And there are many different rules that, that apply to history and historical fact and all of those kind of things. And I'm going to tell you, without going into great detail, is that the Bible, especially the Gospels in this book of Acts, it meets all the criteria for being reliable, accurate history rooted in objective truth. Amen. Now, we live in a culture... That's, that's got many titles today. That culture has been called a postmodern culture. How many of you have ever, you may have heard that, postmodern. Uh, the, mo the more popular term now is the post-Christian culture. What does that mean? We live now in a post-Christian culture. That means when many of you were growing up, just about everybody knew something, at least something about the Bible, didn't they? 
I mean, it was very hard to find somebody, especially down here in the Bible Belt, especially here in the South, where religion plays such a role in our culture, in our daily lives, in our weekly lives. It was very, very rare to run into somebody that didn't have at least some understanding about who Jesus was and who God is and and just, just the basic fundamental truths about the Bible and the gospel. That was when we lived in a Christian culture. But is it the same today? You could go out onto the street today here in Bartlett, Tennessee, and ask 10 people to give you some facts or answer some questions about the Bible or about who Jesus Christ is. And I promise you that a minority of them would have any answers. It's because there's been a generational gap where the Bible has failed to be taught to the next generation and the discipleship has failed to take place, bringing along other people in the faith to the point that we are responsible for as the church. It points back to us and our responsibilities. But what that means as living in a post-Christian culture is that the majority of the people that you come into contact with now today, they don't have the same belief system that you have. They, they very likely don't have the same understanding of who God is or who Jesus Christ is or what is salvation or what is eternal life. And very, very few of them will have that kind of understanding. As a matter of fact, we live in a very what's called relative culture. And it's important that you understand what that means. Because if we live in a, post, a post-Christian, a post-modern culture, this culture of relativism, this is what it means. It means personal experience surpasses historical fact. Subjective feelings are superior to objective truth. Now, Pastor Marcus, what do you mean? It means simply this. Historically, we understood truth as something that had to be discovered. This is very important. Truth was something that we went on a quest to find out, to discover, because in a Christian culture, we understood truth as being objective. It's outside of what we determine it to be. Does that make sense? Well, somewhere along the way, through our cultures and the changes and the shifts in society and the belief systems of our culture, you see, we began to take our personal subjective feelings and we began to say, okay, well, truth is no longer something that I have to set out to discover as being outside of me, but now all I have to do to find truth is look where? Inside of me. And if I feel like something is true, then guess what? It's true. How many of you have ever encountered something like that? There are people all around you right now that believe that very thing. They believe that how, if, it, if it's something that makes them feel good, if it's something that is right for them, and they determine in their own heart within that it's true for them, then that means for them it is true, regardless of what anybody else says, out any objective standard, any moral standard, especially anything that the Bible says. People around us all over the place are living in what's called a relativistic culture. They're trying to define truth instead of going out to discover truth. If you don't think this is real, I had a conversation with a very close person just last week, and this is exactly where we were butting heads in our belief systems because he doesn't want to accept the Bible as being true. He doesn't accept the Bible as being historically accurate, in fact. He thinks the Bible is completely corrupted. And at the end of the day, if you ask him, how does he know what is true and what he believes about God and reality and everything else, you know what he says? He says, I know it because I know it in here. So he's basically telling me he's the one that's defining what truth really is, irregardless of what anybody else says. Now, here's the problem with that. The big problem with that is, is that if you start saying to me that you've defined what truth is, and I start saying to you what I define what truth is, and all of you start defining your own truth within yourself, well, there's a problem with that. Everybody can't be right. By definition, truth it meets the criteria called the law of non-contradiction. You can't simply say that what I believe is true and what they believe is true and every, what everybody believes is true because everything cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. It's an impossibility. It, it defies the law of non-contradiction. What do you mean, Brother Marcus? Well, if Adolf Hitler believed that his purpose in life was to destroy the Jewish race and, and elevate the Aryan race and take over and conquer the world, well, that was true to Adolf Hitler. How could anybody deny that? That was his what? That was his truth. Well, guess what? There's just a big problem with that. It was completely opposed to everybody else's truth in the world. So they both couldn't be what? Right at the same time. You see the problem that you start getting into when you think that you can make determinations for what's true when somebody else is trying to make the same determinations of what's true and they don't agree? 
You see, if, we, if we're just left up to ourselves to make those determinations, we'll never reach the true reality of what is truth. There has to be something outside of us. And of course, we as believers, we know what that something is. It's not just a something, it's a someone. Amen. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has revealed, because Jesus made the bold statement, what did he say? I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus made the bold statement that if you want to know what truth, if you want to discover truth, you've got to look to Jesus is Christ. So don't underestimate how significant this one point is, guys, because you're going to encounter people every single day who believe that if they have determined something to be true in their life and in their heart, then it's true. That's, that's a culture war that we are battling. So the big question is, who determines what is true? Who determines what is true? Well, the, the second point I want to share with you under this point is that the Holy Spirit always speaks and leads us to all truth. So we have this objective truth that's rooted in eyewitness testimony. And the other thing that we want to see about the Word of God is that the Holy Spirit always speaks and leads us into all truth. I'm going to share with you a scripture from the book of 2 Peter. We actually looked at this in our Sunday school class this morning. But 2 Peter chapter 1, listen to what it says in verse 20. Knowing first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's important we know that. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when we look at the Scriptures and we see what Luke is doing here, he's given us a verifiable historical account of the gospel and of the early church and what happened during that time. But we also understand through looking at the, the whole context of Scripture that Luke was writing not just in his own strength, not just according to his own human interpretation, but he was writing under the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know, as we studied in our class again this morning, that the natural man, people who are natural and not, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they cannot accept the things that come from God. Did you know that? That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That the, the men left in their own natural state separated from God, with no relationship, without the Holy Spirit. They can look at the Bible, they can analyze the Bible, they can read the Bible, but they cannot accept the Bible because it doesn't make sense to them. And that's part of my testimony. The Bible didn't make sense to me either before I had the Holy Spirit living inside of me because then He brought to light everything that was true. And so either God has spoken and revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the, through the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures, or if he has not spoken to us, then anything's game. Y'all understand where I'm going with this. Anybody can say anything. Anybody can develop any philosophy. Anybody can come up with any worldview. Anybody can come up with any determination of what they think is true. And then that's just, it's just open for interpretation after that point. So either God has spoken and truth is outside of us or we get to determine it. Now, I think y'all understand that. As a matter of fact, the scriptures are clear that the Holy Spirit is always bearing witness about Jesus Christ. That's what Luke's talking about here. Look at what he says in verse 3, in verse 2. He said, the day that he, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, it's important to you that you stay in Jerusalem because, listen, I've got to go away. You see, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven in bodily form. He's going to leave the presence of the disciples in bodily presence. But then he's going to send the Holy Spirit of God to be with them, with inside of them forever and ever and ever. Everywhere that they go, he would go. Everywhere that they would be, he would be. And it's very important that we see that how Jesus is saying, I'm about to go away, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And he is going to testify about me. He's going to point everyone in the world through you to me. That's why the Holy Spirit is so essential and so important in our personal walk with the Lord. Here's some scriptures that we read. Jesus gave the church some, some encouragement by telling them, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit when I go. Listen to what he says in John 14. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Wow. 
So as Luke is writing this and he's interviewing eyewitnesses and they're telling him about the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is involved in all of that. He's bringing to remembrance everything that happened that's most necessary for us to know about Jesus. He's teaching the disciples as they share the the gospel story with with the church and with other people. uh, Jesus also said this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. So there's no way, there's no possibility for us as believers to bear witness about Jesus unless we first have the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in John 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now listen, this is where we need to step back real quickly as believers, and remember this. There's a lost world out there, and listen, they are walking around in darkness. They are blinded. They're blinded by sin. They're blinded by the ways of the devil. They're blinded by the ways of the world. They do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They do not have any way for them to understand who God is and their eyes to be opened to the truth about Jesus Christ. And so when we deal with them, we don't need to deal with them in frustration. Why would we become frustrated with the lost world that's just going to act like a lost world? We We should become frustrated when the church acts like the world, because we're not supposed to live and think and talk and act like the world. But when we look at the world around us, why do we have these expectations on those people around us that we should never place upon them? Because they're lost. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have any way of really knowing and embracing who Jesus Christ is and understanding the Scripture. That's why it's so important that the work of the Holy Spirit is primary in your life and in my life, because if we're going to be His witnesses, it is a spiritual work. Does this sound familiar? We've talked about this a lot, haven't we? And some of you are like, Brother Mars, I think I've heard you say this probably the last two or three weeks. Well, guess what? We never get past it. We never get past it. And until we really start doing it the way that God has prescribed for us to do it, guys, we're going to keep on proclaiming it. Because there's got to be a point in every believer's life where we understand what kind of work we've been given to do. It's a spiritual work, and we can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, Just a little side note, it's interesting that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection. There's one other passage of scripture. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the gospel and he says that the the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter and and to John and to the disciples and he even appeared to, to, to Paul and he says he appeared to up to how many people at one time? Does anybody know? 500 people at one time, Jesus made an appearance within this 40-day stretch where he was showing himself at his own will, his own pleasure to different people, different groups of people. And and this is kind of a a snippet into that 40-day period that Luke tells us for 40 days, Jesus was instructing his disciples and he was telling them about the kingdom of God. I, I thought it was interesting. I thought I'd share with you real quick just some other interesting 40-day periods in the Bible. This is a side note. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain before he gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. Uh, That's how long he he was in prayer for the people of Israel. Um, Goliath stood in defiance with the armies of Israel before David killed Goliath. That was a 40-day period before David actually took him down with a sling and a stone. 40 days the spies were sent into the land. Moses sent the spies out into the land of Canaan for 40 days to give a report back to God. Elijah's meal lasted for 40 days as Elijah withdrew into the wilderness and God provided food for him. That lasted a 40-day period. Uh, The flood, the flood lasted 40 days. Jonah's warning concerning the destruction of Nineveh, he preached for 40 days to the people of Nineveh. And of course, we also know that after Jesus Christ was baptized, he was, he was led into the wilderness. By whom? Holy Spirit. And how long did he spend in the wilderness? 40 days of temptation. 40 days of t- and so now we have another 40-day period right here where Jesus is instructing the, the disciples about the kingdom of God and how he's preparing them for ministry. Just like Jesus went 40 days into the wilderness to prepare for ministry, now he's saying, I got 40 days with you to prepare you for what's about to come. Now, who are these disciples? It says right here in Acts 1, it says that in verse 2, he says he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, we're going to talk a lot about 
the apostles moving forward in the book of Acts. So I just want to give you a real quick understanding of what does it mean when the Bible says the apostles. Our mission is understood through the role of apostleship. All right, so I want you to think of it in two quick ways. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. In one sense, the, the word apostle just very simply and very easily means someone who is sent out. So an apostle, the, the literal meaning is a messenger who is sent out on a mission, okay? So in that very general sense, who are apostles? Every single person sitting in this room is an apostle in that sense. So we have what's called an, an apostolic ministry, meaning that when you leave this place, you're sent out into the world to be a witness and a messenger, an example for the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we're all apostles. But there's another stricter sense that we have to understand these apostles. The initial apostles were the disciples of Jesus Christ, okay, who walked with him, who saw him, who listened to him teach, who they received firsthand instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were the ones who were there to witness the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. They were there sitting with Jesus, when he looked at them before he went to heaven, and he said, this is what I want you to do. You're going to be my disciples. You're going to be my witnesses. And these are my instructions. And these are my commandments for you. That, that, those were the original apostles. And, and if you look at the scriptures, going back to how can we know that the scriptures are true, when you look at the test and the criteria for what it takes to, 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 for someone to be an author in the Holy Scriptures, they had to either be an original what? Apostle. Or they had to be someone that was firsthand connected to an apostle. Perfect example. Luke, he may not have been an original apostle, being the eyewitness to all of the events of Christ's life. But guess who Luke was very, very close to? The apostle Paul. So Luke and Paul had an had a intimate relationship which qualified Luke to get all of his information from a an apostle. So it's very important that you understand that. So that's, that's what it means. Uh, John Constable... He says that the, the apostles' calling was unique. These men laid the foundation of the church. All Christians are apostles in the sense that Christ has sent all of us who are believers on this mission. Yet the 12 apostles and Paul were a unique group with special powers that the Lord did not give to the rest. So that's what it means when we, our mission is to be understood uh, in apostleship. So this gets us kind of to where we need to go. Now we're going to look at what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, carrying this, this section out, he, we're rooted, uh, our faith is rooted in this objective story, this historical account. Now he's talking to us about being apostles, about being sent out uh, to, to carry out the mission that God has given us, which we're all responsible for. And then he says, don't leave Jerusalem because you've heard it from me that for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So my final point is this, our faith cannot practically be expressed until we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You might could even say our faith cannot be practically experienced either, experienced or expressed, until we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus says that we are to be baptized with or baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go back to the gospel accounts, John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus, and he reminded us of the kind of ministry that Jesus was preparing. This is what he says in Luke 3.16. Remember, John the Baptist, he was baptizing people out in the wilderness. He was preparing their hearts to receive the Messiah. And this is what he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amen. Now, there are a multitude of teachings about this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, obviously, I can't cover all of them exhaustively this morning, but I want to I break it down as simply as I can. And so so to, to get to the root of what Jesus is talking about, in my estimation, about what he means when he says you must be baptized with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you what he is not talking about first. Okay, the first thing is that Jesus is not talking about is that spirit baptism is not referring to the new birth. In other words, spirit baptism right here in this context of when Jesus is telling his disciples, wait for the, for the 
coming, the filling of the Holy Spirit, before you go out and to try to accomplish this mission, he's not talking about regeneration. He's not talking about them being saved. Um, it's very important that we understand that. Now, there's, there's some, uh, some, again, some differences in interpretation because of a few other verses in Scripture. And I'll share one with you because I do want to present some different sides to you. But I'll, I'll eventually tell you why I don't believe he's talking about the new birth or salvation in this context. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, a lot of people have taken that verse and said, well, see, now Paul's talking about being baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ. Now, if we were just to read that in its take that one verse out of context and read it, it would make us to believe that what Paul is talking about there is our salvation because the moment that we were saved, the moment, the moment that we're born again, we're added to the body of Christ. Nobody's going to argue with that. But see, baptism can mean several different things throughout the Scriptures. And when you read Acts 1 and 2, you begin to see that Jesus wasn't necessarily talking about the disciples were going to be saved when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit because we have many reasons to believe that the, the disciples were already what? They were already believers. They already had faith in Christ. They already had that relationship with Jesus Christ. So they didn't need to get saved again, but there was something else going on right here. Now, another thing to that is that there are so many passages in the Scriptures that deal with salvation, that deal with you must you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For it is by grace through faith you are saved. Right, So there's so many passages of Scripture, we could go on and on and on, that talk about that salvation experience that really have nothing to do with being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, So that, that, again, that's, that's kind of the, the idea that I'm trying to get at. So the, so the new birth is not necessarily in view here when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when you think about what he said in the Gospel of Luke in Acts 1.8, think about what Jesus is communicating. He says in Luke 24... He tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he sends the promise of his father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he's saying, I need you to stay in the city until I can empower you. I can clothe you with this power. He also says it in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And so it's clear to me right here that Jesus is not talking about you shall be saved when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but you shall just be what? Empowered. You will, you will receive my power, this extra feeling to do what God is calling you to do. The second thing is that spirit baptism is not referring to the exclusive gift of speaking in tongues. Now we'll get a little bit more in detail about the different interpretations about the gift of tongues in, in, uh, when we look at Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and the disciples are speaking in tongues. As a matter of fact, there's several occurrences in the book of Acts where the, the uh, disciples begin to speak in other languages. But let me just lay this out to you as, as, as easily and simply as I can. There are some um, denominations and some Christian groups that would teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the second act of God that follows salvation. So they, they don't believe it's salvation either, but they believe that it's something that's essential for the empowering of the Christian. And they believe that the way that you know that you've been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit is that you begin to what? You begin to speak in this gift of tongues. And I've, I've met many people who come from a, a charismatic background, people that I have really good re relationships with, and I've heard their stories and testimonies. I, there was one, one young man who struggled for years and years and years because he never would or never could speak in tongues. And his family basically looked at him as a less than Christian because he never spoke in tongues. And they're basically saying, well, we, we believe that you could be saved, but you're never going to be a, a, a really good Christian until we see the evidence that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it discouraged him greatly. Matter of fact, I think he eventually left the church because of it, because he never really spoke in tongues. And he wanted to so bad because that, that particular denomination put so much emphasis. And look, this is the problem with this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and how it relates to tongues. Most of these charismatic groups, what they'll do, and if you're not careful, you'll, you'll see this, they elevate the gift of tongues above all other what? All other gifts. They take the gift of tongues 
And, and they, they basically say, all these other gifts are down here, but the gift of tongues is way up here. And you're really not a spiritual, elevated Christian until you too are speaking in tongues. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because if we believe that, then there are millions of Christians all over the planet today, and I promise you, they've never done what? They've never spoken in tongues. I've never spoken in tongues. I'm not saying it is a legitimate gift. I had some neighbors when we were living down in the Delta, and they were from a charismatic background, and they prayed over me and Abby multiple times, and they tried to get us to speak in tongues. I mean, they prayed and prayed and prayed in tongues, and they tried to get us to speak in tongues. And let me tell you something, guys. It just never happened. I prayed. I asked God, God, give me this ability. Give me this ability to be able to, to, to speak in this, in this heavenly language, and it just never happened to me. But does that mean that I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit? It doesn't. And so that's where you have to be careful because there are some beliefs. And some of you may have come from those backgrounds and that, that belief system where speaking in tongues was really elevated above all the other gifts. And it puts really a, an unnatural separation between believers. It really does. And so we have to understand that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not the exclusive gift of speaking in tongues. Now, what is it then? Spirit baptism, my final point is to be best understood to be synonymous with the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's to be synonymous with the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'll put it to you this way. We need to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being filled by or flooded with the Holy Spirit. John Piper said it this way. The essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who is already a believer receives extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. Let me say that again. I think this is a very good definition. And this is, this is where I have come to believe what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means. I'm not saying that I'm not being dogmatic in it, but in my study, this is where I've come to believe. Let me say that again. The essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who is already a believer, okay, we're talking about people who are saved in relationship with Christ, they receive extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. So this is not salvation. This is not this ex exclusive gift of speaking in tongues, but it is simply this empowering, this filling, this extra measure, this extra presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, which enables him or her to minister on a more effective level, on a more effective level. So why, again, do I believe this? Well, as we read and journey through the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, let's just consider Acts chapter 2 real quick. Now, we're going to get there very soon, but in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, do you know what it says? It says at that, point, at that moment when the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, it says they were all filled. They, he, Paul, uh, Luke uses that word. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. So even in that Reference. Remember, Jesus is telling the disciples, wait in Jerusalem. There's going to come a time where I'm pouring out my spirit. I'm going to empower you to do my work. And in that specific reference, when it actually happened in Acts chapter 2, Luke uses the very word filled. The disciples at that point were filled with the Holy Spirit, which empowered them to begin their ministry. But that's not the only time. Let me share a few with In Acts chapter 4, 8, Peter is again filled with the Holy Spirit before he preaches. In Acts 4.31, the disciples were praying, and the place that they were praying in was shaking, and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, we meet Stephen, and he is full of faith, and he is full of the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen is empowered to do this great work. He was doing some wonderful ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit at his conversion, and then he began to speak and do extraordinary work for the Lord. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, Paul again was filled. Are y'all getting the theme here? This recurring theme that the disciples were ongoing and they were being filled by the Holy Spirit continuously. Amen. Now again, this is why I reached the conclusion that when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's important that we know how to, to talk about these things in Christian circles because you will meet so many people from so many different backgrounds and, and there's going to be some confusion there. 
Uh, my son is in college, and he called me last week, and he's, he's about to go in, in room with a, another young man, and they have some differences in their belief system. And this young man comes from a, a denomination that believes that someone must be baptized in water in order for them to be saved. It's called baptismal regeneration. Again, you need to know what other people believe, and you need to know how to defend your faith. And so that's why I took some time this morning to kind of get into the nitty-gritty about what is Jesus really talking about here when he says you, must, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, last point. It's very interesting that the book of Acts has no proper ending. It's left open-ended. And I began to ask myself, why is that? Why is the book of Acts open-ended? Why was there not a, a definite, finite closing to this book? My explanation is that Luke, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he left the book open-ended for a purpose. Because guess what? When Paul died, and he did die, did the Great Commission stop? When all of the disciples and apostles who first knew Jesus and walked with him, when they died, did the work of Christ stop? When the church went through the dark ages and the Catholic church was, was on the rise as the greatest power and, and a lot of people were ignorant of the scriptures and didn't have their, the word of God in their own language, did, did the work of Jesus Christ stop? No. Even here we are today, 2018, is the work finished? It's not, because the book of Acts is continually to be written, right? There's still another chapter to be written in the book of Acts, and guess what? You're part of that. And I think I shared that with you a couple of weeks, but I want you to really begin to embrace that and understand that, that we are here, and the thing that we need to take away from this message is simply this. Yes, our faith is rooted in objective truth, but guys, we have got to position ourselves as believers if we really want to step into this role that God is calling us. And listen, let me tell you something honestly. I'm talking to myself right now. I'm talking to myself. Because I'm not perfect, and I, I confessed to my Sunday school class this morning, I began to see my personal time with the Lord diminish. I begin to see distractions flood my mind where I'm not giving the Lord my undivided time and attention when I really need to. And let me tell you something. We, we as Christians can't minister like that very long because it's a daily continual process of being what? Filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit. And the only way we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to do the work that God has called you and me to do on a daily basis is if we're willing to position ourselves in a way where we can hear from Him and receive Him. Does that make sense? Now listen, if we don't make adjustments and changes in our daily routine, in our daily walk, we're never going to really position ourselves in a place where we can be still before God, where we can spend time with Him and give Him our time and attention and really try to listen to Him, plead for Him to come, ask Him to come and fill us, ask Him to come give us what we need to be His witnesses. If we're not seriously and intentionally doing that, guys, and only God knows if you are or not, I don't. But I can say overall, just looking at the view of the North American church, the majority of us are, are not doing that. Because I believe with all my heart that if we were taking time to position ourselves and hear from God and receive this supernatural feeling from God, it would change our life, it would change our homes, it would change our churches, and it would change the communities in which we live. It really would, because that's what the whole mission's about. So if there's a disconnect, if there's something that's not lining up or adding up, it's probably because we're not necessarily doing our part right now to get ourselves in a position, in a place to receive from God what he has to give us. So that's your application. And it's very, very simple. As we go, and that's what I'm going to say to you every week when we preach through the book of Acts, as we go, we're about to go, right? You got a whole week ahead. This is the first day of the week. New week starting. So as we go... We must continue to position ourselves daily. Don't miss that. Daily. I'm preaching to Marcus. Daily to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit so that God can send us out and equip us for effective witness, to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the message of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
So guys, as we sing this last song, I'm going to ask Joe and our band to come on up as they start making their way up. We're going to sing a song that I love, and many of you know, I Surrender All, right? You all probably have heard it, and most of you probably know it. And I want to just share with you, that's the posture. Y'all stay with me just a few more minutes. That's the posture. If we're going to be His witnesses, if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit... If we're going to be empowered, clothed on pow- with power from on high, as God promised He would do for all of us, we have to be able to put ourselves in a position where we surrender. Can anybody identify with that? Because, it, look, basically this is, the, this is the cry. This is the prayer. I'm not telling you what to do right now. But this is the cry of my heart. Lord, I can't do this. I've tried. I've tried to do it my way. I've tried to do it in my own strength. I can keep it going for a little while, but eventually I get tired and worn out and burned out and frustrated. So God, I give up. I give up. I surrender. I surrender my will. I surrender my volition. I surrender my desires. I surrender my day. I surrender everything, my time, my talent, my money, my life. I surrender everything right now. I completely give it up and lay it at your feet. And I'm asking you now, God, to take, because when we surrender, we lay it all down, we pour it all out. Then guess what? We're empty now we're able to what? To receive. See, until we're emptied, until our hearts are emptied of all these other things that are distracting us and pulling us away from God, we can't receive because our hearts are full of so many idols and so many other things. So right now, I'm just going to ask you, as our band begins to play, do whatever you have to do right now to say, God, I surrender. I empty myself and I want you to fill me. And listen, even if it's just for today, just for today. Because when you wake up tomorrow, guess what? You got to do it all over again. And that's the beauty in the, in the, in the, of the journey and of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's a day-by-day relationship. Amen. So I'm going to pray for us. I want you all to go ahead and stand, and we're going to go ahead and sing this song. And you do business with God right where you are. If you need to come talk, if you need to come pray, this altar is always open. And you guys, you let the Lord minister to your heart wherever you are. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful day. I thank you for this church family. And Lord, I know that you look at us with love and compassion. And I know that you see your children and that, Lord, you desire to pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, you desire to fill us and empower us. And God, I know that there are times when you're just waiting for us to put ourselves in that position, in that posture where we're able to receive what you have for us. God, forgive us for trying to fill our lives with so many other things. Forgive us, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm one who has put idols in front of you. But today, God, I pray you begin to do a work in our heart and our life in such a way that we would be able to surrender all and receive from you the Holy Spirit to give us what we need. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said,